On an evening in early December 2018, the young CEO of a cryptocurrency exchange reportedly dies while on his honeymoon in India. This death is not announced to customers for another month. And when they're told Gerald Cotton is the only person to hold the passwords to their funds, conspiracy theories grow, leaving some to wonder, could Gerald Cotton still be alive? Honeymoon, moving the body, all the missing money. It was like, but what happened? A Death in Cryptoland. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The summer of 2016 was hot as hell. And things felt even more humid because pop music fans were caught up in this are they, aren't they tension between Rihanna and Drake. The music they made together was the soundtrack of that summer. Like the song you're hearing right now, Work, from Rihanna's album Anti. It was a shout out to Rihanna's Bayesian heritage and her love of reggae and dancehall music and Drake's connection to Toronto, which is home to a significant West Indian diaspora. The video is pretty sexy too. There's party people all around and the two of them look very cozy, pressed up against each other in the shadow of this towering speaker. Later that summer came the peak of this speculated romance. Those cheers and screams you're hearing, that's when they appeared together at the MTV Video Music Awards. Some artists need to play a character to achieve success. Some need to downplay their own natural instincts to blend in. Rihanna's standing there and her body language is a little funny. She's watching this guy who's maybe her boyfriend, we're not exactly sure, as he charms the audience with this glowing speech. She succeeds by doing something that no one in this music industry does, which is being herself. The minutes wear on. Rihanna's flipping between crossing her arms and nervous laughter. And at one point, and this is how you know it was 2016, she lifts her arms and does the dab. In the days leading up to the show, we found out Rihanna was going to receive this big Lifetime Achievement Award. And the hype around it intensified when Drake threw out what some people might call a grand romantic gesture. A huge billboard looming over L.A. that read, Congratulations to Rihanna from Drake and everyone at OVO. She's someone I've been in love with since I was 22 years old. Ladies and gentlemen, the recipient of the Michael Jackson Vanguard Award for 2016, Rihanna. He finishes introducing her, they hug, and you can hear the decibel-crushing relief of fans letting out months of pent-up energy about these two. It was a one-sided crescendo to a semi-public romance. I mean, I can't recall what Rihanna said when she took the mic. But I do remember what happened after. Fans began talking about how Rihanna's big moment felt overshadowed by Drake. He was being way more public about whatever was going on between them than her. And his celebrity seemed to benefit from that too. I thought this was interesting. I mean, on the surface, these were nice gestures by an artist who is the nice guy of hip hop. Hardly anything to write a think piece about, right? But it's not just that fans were reacting to Drake being Drake. I think the reaction signaled a shift in how Drake fans and pop music fans, who are primarily young women, are responding to the broader shifts in gender dynamics that are taking place. 
And that's pretty important when you consider that Drake is maybe the most well-known rapper in the world. The artist who made the contemporary emotional masterpiece, Take Care, someone who's seen as an antidote to the alpha male bravado that's become part of rap's public image. We live in a generation of not being in love and not being together. But we sure make it feel like we're together. Cause we're scared to see each other with somebody else. But is it actually progress? I'm Anupa Mystery, and this is Not a Drake Podcast. I'm your host for this episode. And we'll look at how conversations around gender are shifting and how that shows up in hip hop. You'll hear from three Black women who look closely at this in their work. So I've been an arts reporter for over 10 years, and people seem to think writing about music and pop culture is either totally frivolous or glamorous, but it's neither both and so much more. Personally, I've been challenged by this work a lot. I'm a person of South Asian descent, and I grew up in a primarily black and brown suburb of Toronto. And that perspective, it really informs my work. But something I've seen since I was a kid, and especially throughout my career, is how proximity to black communities can be used by white and other non-black people to claim those cultures and lived experiences. That can lead to misrepresentation and sometimes erasure. I never took a gender studies class in my life, so my entry point for thinking about how gender intersects with pop culture, it really began with the work of Black women writers and hip-hop journalists like Dream Hampton and Joan Morgan in particular. So I was thinking about all of that while putting this episode together, even as I also worked through whether Ty passing the mic to me might add to this perception of gender issues being presented as a quote-unquote woman's concern. The cultural conversations happening right now are broader and more varied than 10 years ago when I was just starting out. And there have been big shifts in how we talk about and understand gender too. And that's infiltrated the hip-hop universe. I think you can see this in Drake. And I wondered if his brand as hip-hop's nice guy suggests some kind of evolution. So we usually do a, a thing on the nice guy. Trevor Lindsay is a prof at Ohio State University, the author of numerous publications on Black feminism, and she teaches a super popular undergrad course on hip hop and gender. I have them list out, like, what are the qualities of the nice guy? And let's do a close read of these artists and the lyrics that we hear, the performances that they do, the interviews and, and how they talk about that. And, you know, when we do that, we're able to come to some understanding collectively, right? They push me as well on this. It's not just me pushing them to be like, Drake isn't the nice guy you think he is. That's not my hypothesis going in. Travis sees the nice guy as just one of hip hop's many gender performances, like say the gangster or the player or the conscious queen. And these roles can help track the evolution of gender and sexuality in the music. What hip hop affords us as a popular culture text to study is an opportunity to be honest about where we are, where we've been, where we'd like to be, where we're not. And this is my first year where almost all of my students were born after 2000. There's fundamentally different ways that they understand hip hop. Hip hop for them is not some genre that to fight its way into being respective. Mm -hmm. It's literally everywhere. 
20 years is a really long time. Hip hop's been absorbed by the mainstream. And as a result, many pop stars now are either rappers or have borrowed aesthetically from hip hop. But back when Trevor was young, hip hop was reflective of a more specific experience. And her work today is rooted in growing up in a household that loved rap and with parents who actually talked about what the artists were saying. I'm an early 80s baby, that generation right in between Gen X and millennials, so the micro generation that we talk about that really doesn't know music and popular culture without hip hop. I didn't grow up with parents who were reluctant about hip hop, but saw it as youth culture and this emergent way to kind of think about black life, particularly black urban life growing up in Washington, D.C. And so it became instantly part of how I understood myself when I thought about crushes, when I thought about politics, when I thought about what was going on in the world, that I could look to hip hop and see reflections of those things in the music, in the art, in the performance, in the dance. And so it certainly is a part of my nurturing as I grew from a young girl and to a woman. Trevor's parents were both educators and they saw rap as an opportunity to connect with young people. What were some of the conversations you had with your parents around hip hop and, and gender? My dad did love N.W.A. love the music, the samples. It's Dr. Dre, and he's an incredible producer. But I also think he saw potential in what they are. He also saw the misogyny and the, the very, very explicit language and the profanity, and there were things he absolutely disagreed with. But I think he also saw what it was sparking in young men he was working with at the time, how they connected to that music and saw it as an entry point to have more robust conversations about policing, about incarceration, about the drug epidemic, about drugs in communities. I think they allowed me to think about the sexism that was there, the misogyny that was there, why we saw and heard the B word as often as we did or this clear um denigration of women that was happening in some ways. And we also saw affirming things. And so I think they were attempting to give me language very early on around how our society looks at women, how our society looks at Black women and girls in particular, and seeing hip-hop as this mirror. And the mirror doesn't always show a pretty picture. They weren't uncritical of hip-hop because they loved it, but they also were intentional about instilling in me that to be in love, in relationship with something means you get to hold that something accountable as well. What was the what was the moment or, um, you know, the song or music video or image that that changed the way that you thought about the images that hip hop was presenting when it comes to gender? You know, for me, it was uh, Dr. Dre's explosive. That beat is just addictive. And then you got, <laughs> it's a pimp track, you know, and it's like yes. really like messed up when you, when, when I thought about, I was 14 years old when that song came out. And then like, <laughs> you know, a few years later, I'm like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Fuck a bitch. Don't tease bitch. Strip 
tease, bitch. Eat a bowl of these, bitch. Gobble a dick. Host forgot to eat a dick and shut the fuck up. Gargle and swallow a nut up. Shut up and get my cash. Backhanded, pimp slap backwards and left stranded. Just pop your collar. Pimp convention hoes for a dollar. I'm all here for explicit content. I, I want the freedom of expression. I think it is a reflection of where we are and what gender and sexual politics are in any given moment that you can kind of map through hip hop. But I also think now we're pushing the boundaries and not really addressing at the core what makes misogyny so ripe a site to create from. So I think about a song like Tip Drill by Nelly in the accompanying video. He swipes a, a credit card down a woman's butt crack. Right. And, you know, that image really stuck out for a lot of people. I have my classes, look at that video, and I'm like, does it change if you know that the woman who he slid the card down actually was the one who suggested that he do that? Does it change how we view that moment to know that? I asked Treva to tell me about some of the other musical moments that shaped her thinking over the years. Hip-hop has a long trajectory of men talking about topics other than the ones we tend to think about in terms of misogyny and sexism that express emotion, desire, love, connection to community, political hip-hop. You very early on have this counterbalance of songs that are very open and loving towards women. Someone like an LL Cool J has consistently made songs that are loving and dynamic about women. When I'm alone in my room, sometimes I stare at the wall and in the back of my mind, I hear my conscience call telling me I need a girl who's as sweet as a dove. For the first time in my life, I see I need, I need love. love. I mean, there's a song very early on in hip hop with a man talking about the kind of love that he needs. Then the thought occurred, tear drops made my eyes burn because I said to myself, look what You've done to her. But you also have, you know, Big Daddy Kane, who's the smooth player type that's talking about being a smooth operator. I make it real good, like Dr. Feel Good, to make sure that my point is understood. That when it comes to this, there's none greater. Sincerely yours, the smooth operator. This glorification very early on of a kind of pimp player culture. You also have Salt and Pepper coming back with a song like None of Your Business that's talking about a pleasure politic. Like, if I want to take a guy home with me tonight, it's none of your business. You'll also get these moments of it ain't no fun if the homies can't have none, which is a song I used to love, 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 love. That's from Snoop's very first album, Doggy Style, which came out in 1993. And that was very disturbing for me to kind of go back and listen to that song. And as I was revisiting the connections between rape culture and hip-hop, I really had to think about this idea of women being objects that could be passed around, that you could give permission to your friends that this woman is sexually now available to all of you because she and I had a consensual sexual encounter. Mm. Then there's an artist like Tupac Shakur, who I think, really accurately represents these tensions that can make songs like Dear Mama and then have I get around <laughs> and hit him up. When which the first thing he's talking about is that he had sex with Biggie Small's wife, right, right. on this battle track. First off, fuck your bitch in the click you claim. West side when we ride, come equipped with game. You claim to be a player, but I fucked your wife. We bust 
So around this time, major anxiety about hip hop began showing up in the mainstream media. Hi, everybody. Here's a clip from the Oprah Winfrey show in 1990. These are the lyrics of much of today's popular music, from rock and roll to rap, and they sell millions. And believe me, your children know these very songs. The first group- I think the moral panic emerges because if you thought hip hop was just a fad, now you're seeing it sell out major venues. You're seeing artists go platinum. You're having kids who are not in communities that hip hop originates out of being major fans of it. It's showing up on MTV now. Um, It's not just on BET, but it's touching all of these different communities and becoming a musical force, becoming a cultural force. And it's also becoming a political force. People like Tipper Gore and the civil rights activist C. Dolores Tucker start to make headlines condemning the violence, sex, and drugs in music. Gore is successful in getting record labels to put those black and white parental advisory stickers on album covers. Tucker, she buys stock in record labels like Sony and Time Warner so she can protest rap lyrics at shareholder meetings. And there are government hearings looking into offensive and violent lyrics in the recording industry. Good morning. This hearing of the Energy and Commerce... Which was really a public vilification of rap music and its supposed hatred of women. I am deeply concerned about the violence, misogyny, the hatred of women contained in the lyrics and in the music. The thing is, the closest targets of all that lyrical misogyny were young Black women, many of whom were fans of rap. And in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, Black women writers and Black cultural institutions responded to the rappers and the critics of rap. You know, in that moment, you start to have some really public conversations. The Essence magazine's Take Back the Music campaign. You have symposiums on hip hop and feminism that are all happening in the early 2000s to be like, okay, we're not saying that hip hop is singularly responsible for the rampant sexism and misogyny that exists in U.S. society. Mm. However, because this is a culture that we love and feel a part of and feel connected to, I think it's important that we ask some really hard questions about why we land here. But it also got the pushback of why are we singling out hip hop where you can be in religious institutions that are very patriarchal and sexist and misogynistic. So what is it about hip hop in particular? A key idea came out of this moment, hip hop feminism. It was developed by a journalist named Joan Morgan. And in 1999, she wrote the book on it. Here's a clip of her speaking at a conference in the 2000s. I think that hip hop brings to light many, many, many of the issues that feminists were reluctant to take on, issues of accountability, issues of uh, black female sexuality and eroticism. I think that when you do an Oprah and you just kind of dismiss hip hop as sexist and misogynist, all of it, you pass up valuable opportunity to have some of these conversations, because like it or not, the hottest conversations around gender in the Black community are taking place around hip-hop. Joan Morgan's book was called When Chickenheads Come Home to Roost. I read it in my early 20s when I thought feminism was for white girls, and it helped me understand how to be a fan of something and hold it to account. You know, solutions to misogyny and feminism can often be framed as the right or wrong way to behave or think. But Joan writes about developing a feminism that fucks with the greys. 
she was writing in response to the hypermasculine rap trope of the 90s, the influence of artists like Pac or Ice Cube. And Treva is updating this thinking for the current context where the rapper on top is Nice Guy Drake. If you do read him as someone who's saying something a little different than what you're used to hearing, that's affirming, that does a video like Nice For What, that's featuring all these amazing women and particularly Black women, that there's something endearing about that, that you're being loved out loud. And I think Black women are very appreciative of those moments. But we're also demanding a lot more of those moments. Louisiana shit. Murder on the beat. When Nice For What dropped at the top of 2018, the feminist Drake memes were everywhere. A lot of people thought the song was empowering. I mean, he was definitely doing something with that Lauryn Hill sample. And if you remember, the news cycle at that time was wrapped up with this big energy. The Women's March, Tarana Burke's Me Too movement, Time's Up. There were just all these stories surfacing of women and trans people, victims of gender-based violence and harassment and discrimination, demanding accountability, demanding more. People were pissed. And Drake had a feel-good song ready to go. And it was kind of the perfect time to really solidify that nice guy brand Janessa Williams is a PhD student at the University of Leeds in the UK. And in 2019, she published this master's thesis that caught my attention. So the the official title is Nice For What? A Critical Analysis of Drake, Millennial Feminism and the Negotiation of Wokeness in Female Hip Hop Fandom. There's a lot to unpack. I kind of couldn't believe it when I found Janessa's thesis because it was so specific and pretty much exactly what I wanted to talk about. And it's interesting, too, because Janessa's close in age to Trevor Lindsay's students. Like them, she grew up on Drake. I had a really massive emo phase growing up. And when I began to kind of diversify my listening outside of that, I was still very drawn to, no matter what genre it was, lyrics that were kind of melancholy or a bit emotional. So Drake was kind of the perfect person to explore that. He was being pretty honest about where he was coming from. He was exploring his vulnerabilities. He was kind of keeping, I guess, the pop hooks intact, but... He was also challenging a lot of ideas at the time about what masculinity in hip-hop was. He's really quite uniquely placed um, for the millennial marketplace in terms of how many diverse identities he is able to occupy. One moment he's playing up his Jewishness, the other moment he's playing up his blackness, the next he's kind of playing up his Canadian um, status and then he sort of dips over to the Caribbean and suddenly he's there for a bit and then he flies over to London. He's always kind of moving around different areas um, in a way that isn't inauthentic because they are all parts of his identity. That's kind of interesting. The way Drake moves through these different spaces means people project a lot of their own stuff onto him. You see him the way you want to. I think that's something Drake really understands and uses to his own advantage. Over the years, fans have been really eager to label him a feminist, a title he's never claimed or denied.
So we all know kind of about his proximity to Rihanna, his proximity to Nicki Minaj and the kind of songs he's written around those. I never fucked Nicki cause she got a man, but when that's over then I'm first in line. We know a lot about the songs he's written for his mum and kind of how he talks about her in an extremely positive way, but very much in terms of what she has done for him rather than who she is as a person. So it's very rarely a straightforward celebration of their womanhood. Janessa told me about some of the other Drake hits that made her question the whole nice guy character. Taking Hold On We're Going Home as being the example. I got my eyes on you. You're everything that I see. I won't show high love and emotion endlessly. I know you remember this song. Drake has said it's the kind of song he imagined would play at people's weddings for years and years to come. But do you remember the video? It's a mini gangster movie. You know, there's guns and there's fighting and there's saving women. It was kind of a pretty massive eye roll. You know, is this really necessary for someone who is getting all of these plaudits as being someone who's challenging masculinity and shifting things along? And then there's Hotline Bling. And the video really played into this idea of Drake as this cuddly, non-threatening, goofy guy who just loves cozy sweaters and dancing like no one's watching. I suppose while I was enjoying that song and enjoying the video, I began to maybe ask myself why I was okay listening to and enjoying this song that ultimately describes a lot of behaviours in its lyrics that if I saw that happening amongst my own friend circle or people I knew, I would instantly label it as toxic. Why you never alone? Why you always touch a roll? Used to always stay at home, be a good girl, you was in a zone. Yeah, you should just be yourself. Right now you're someone else. You used to call me on my side. There's a lot of very basic slut shaming in that song. Very finger pointy, sort of like, I'm upset about this and it's your fault and you have made me this way. That is very customary of Drake's work. Um, he's quite quick. I think, to blame women in a kind of look-what-you've-done manner that, I guess, using today's language, we'd probably call gaslighting. And then, nice for what? And that, to me, just suddenly felt like just a very, very summative point of everything that I was trying to say in terms of whether he genuinely was this nice guy or whether it was something that he realised he should drop because the Me Too movement was just picking up pace. I guess I started to question whether he was just adopting it as another marketing move. Why does this matter? Well, fans know there's a more mm, antagonistic character that sometimes pops out in Drake's music, but it's the nice guy image that's more appealing. Everybody can relate to the idea and the feeling of knowing what it is to kind of have this problematic favourite. It's a bit like how, you know, we've all got a family member or a friend that we would just stick up for no matter what. We all know that feeling, so I think that's a really human place. I think it's much harder and much more interesting to see how somebody who is a Drake fan but is also a feminist um, deals kind of emotionally and practically with following someone whose work has the potential to also make them feel uncomfortable. 
I use the example of Drake, but I think the questions I asked apply to any form of media, any form of fandom. So Janessa spoke to a bunch of fans for her study, and what's interesting is that almost all of them told her it was important to represent women more positively, and that they preferred the Drake songs that did. But then when I asked them the basic yes-no question about whether they would consider themselves feminist, most of them said they didn't identify with the term or didn't like the term or didn't want to ever use that in relation to themselves. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Despite its ubiquity today, after all of the political and cultural gains that feminist organizing has won, even after Beyonce claimed the term on her song Flawless, mainstream feminism still focuses on the needs of middle-class white women. And it's also seen as a hostile ideology. And in relation to who? Well, men, of course. There was this one specific person who I spoke to, and she was so interesting. She considered herself a quote-unquote good girl. And she kind of said to me that all of the lyrics about women that were more negative um, completely passed her by because she felt like she knew who she was and therefore she knew that Drake wasn't singing about her or people like her. So it became kind of easy for her to just disregard those lyrics as being problematic, which again um, is kind of very indicative of quite a neoliberal approach to feminism that's very much like, as long as I'm okay, then it's all okay. So that's what really had me blown. Janessa talking about these young fans categorizing themselves as good girls and not those kind of girls. For all of the progress that's been made on the right to women's pleasure and desirability, to not have to care what men think of them, even the nice guys, well, there's the patriarchy weaseling its way in. I thought Janessa might have a more optimistic result. Instead, I was brought back to my own adolescence. High school ran on these kinds of informal codes. Girls knew they were being watched by their parents, by boys, teachers, by each other. At least for those few years, being labeled easy or a slut, it could have pretty deep social consequences. It could even lead to physical harm. And outside of the bubble of high school, that imprint can be hard to shake. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So a few years back, I was at this local festival watching this Toronto rapper named Sidani perform. She was pacing the stage in these super cute platform sneakers and in between songs, she hit the audience with a little bit of real talk. Something she does at almost every show. I often talk about the fact that, like, I work with women in every capacity that I can. And, like, you need to pick us up. 
you guys have to big me up because there's 375,000 male rappers out here and 4.5 people who identify as female. You know what I mean? So you need to make noise because I'm a black woman on stage and you don't know when's the next time you're going to see something this good. I was inspired. It was a while since I'd encountered an artist who wasn't trying to play a role on stage, who seemed comfortable just being themselves. I might flirt, flirt, do my dirt, dirt, fucking Uber with the work, work. I might reach first, no names, we don't need phones. You're just too hot, bum a man, funny run a man from my old block, older head, pre and little girls, you a fucking joke. Toss him in the Humber River with a hundred little pokes where you stay. Yeah, you know what it is. It's Sidani on CBC Radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Southside to my <laughs> Sidani is, among many things, extremely candid. So I thought she might have something to say about how young girls are taught to think about themselves, because it comes up in her music. I also suspected she wouldn't go easy on the nice guy. My first mixtape was me kind of like, am I ratchet? Am I conscious? That mixtape was called Public Intoxication, and it came out in 2013. I'm discovering, like, knowledge of self. These are all the expectations and requirements that come with it that I'm I'm just not sure if I can fulfill. You know, there's, like, Black women, and then you have, like, the different archetypes in terms of, like, female rappers. There's not that many archetypes, actually. You know, you have the vixen, the hypersexualized, super femme, and then I don't know what the opposite of that is, like, the not-so-sexy, intellectual, like, bookwormy, like, Lauren Hill-type vibe. Like, I feel like anytime people make the distinction between, like, what female rappers are, it's like, either you're a Little Kim or a Lauren Hill. There's um also Missy Elliott, but people don't even talk about her when they talk about right. the female archetypes because she's an other, you know what I mean? Yeah, so what Sidani is saying here is that, for a time, Missy was denied a sexual identity because she was in a larger body, and because she made songs about sex and desire that centered women's joy and pleasure. Black women are not looking for the same types of approval anymore. There's enough of us out here to support each other's narratives. And that is not what people are looking at when they're thinking of approving Black women in hip hop. They're not thinking of a black woman who's proud to say, yeah, he's going to yam my pussy. Like, they're not looking for that kind of confidence in black women. But that is like what allows us to, like, I guess, glide over bullshit and create our own context of like what being like powerful within, you know, the broader conversation of like misogyny and da 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 in hip hop. Because uh, some people will say, well, how does that help? Like, how does saying that, like, you know, talking about your pussy in a track helps? But it's like, it's one step more than him talking about my pussy. <clears throat> me saying that, you know, I'm going to make him um, eat me out is better than him saying that he's going to fuck me from here to Saskatchewan. Like, <laughs> These archetypes that she's talking about are how racism and sexism intersect with the way music is marketed. And Tadani is actively trying to rewrite the narrative attached to these images by being herself. A queer woman, a mom, a community worker, and a rapper. But I wondered whether the nice guy sometimes worms his way through her filter. Okay, a male rapper's getting sensitive, okay. What, what did you think about this? He's still a guy, isn't he? <laughs> what? <laughs> I thought about it, I'm like, wait, is that a trick question? Finesse, co-op, co-op. That's a finesse. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not a finesse. 
I feel like, okay, yeah, maybe mans are getting more sensitive, but for who? For themselves, not for the benefit of us. I mean, no, not for the benefit of us. It's definitely for themselves. What is that sensitivity like reinforcing to you that makes it about themselves and not about women? Well, it's not a sensitivity to receiving information. It's not like a sensitivity to what we're telling them or what we're talking about. It's just like being more sensitive in terms of expressing how they feel. But you're expressing how you feel not to fix something, but to get a fix. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like using or attempting to use like familiar language and ideas and even experiences of women to get closer proximity to them, to like get them to drop their guard. And yeah, it's like, it's so scary because we associate misogyny with like very specific like images and ideas. So basically, like when you're labeled as a nice guy, it makes people automatically assume that you're a good guy and it softens the blow of like what people would consider to be like weird or sketchy or like not cool behavior. You know what I mean? If your actions are not for like the protection and the upliftment of women, then I just can't. That's what misogyny is to me. People be talking shit in music about the female experience all the time. Like, what are you saying outside of that? I knew Sadani would refocus the burden of responsibility back to men instead of making women the source of the problem and the solution, which is also often the case. So if, as she said, the nice guy is a finesse, if it's a front, then what is it a front for? This idea of the nice guy doesn't actually give us space to think about masculinity and the demands of masculinity. Here's Trevor Lindsay again, the prof who teaches that course on gender and hip hop. And we're flipping it now, thinking about what the nice guy says about how men think about the world. You don't have to call someone a bitch or a hoe for you to feel like you're giving license to treat them in a way that's less than they deserve as a human being. Um, I'm less worried about the name calling than it is the actual treatment and the practices that follow that. I think with songs that are catchy and interesting and have these love professions that we have to be very careful about them and unpacking them with regards to what that means about that person's actual politics around gender or sexuality. How do we take Drake's body of work and see where he's pushing back against traditional notions, perhaps even toxic notions, and then interrogating what makes that progressive? It's uncomfortable, right? The idea that a simple love song might have something less pleasant lurking below, like love is a form of control, surveillance, even repression. Like, sometimes that sad love song is about burying your feelings in unhealthy ways. And those subtle messages, they have a source. You know, you hear the term toxic masculinity all the time in popular culture now, but we talk about that in terms of how it affects other people and don't actually talk about the prison that that can be for men, boys, having to live up to 
performing that all the time, that strength, that that they're not affected, that they're not emotional, that emotion is a sign of weakness, that we're moving into a space where we're saying, okay, the mental and emotional health and well-being of all people, regardless of gender, matters. And so how do we create a world in which vulnerability isn't seen as weakness, but as human? Joan Morgan's idea still holds true. Hip-hop continues to facilitate some of the hottest conversations around gender. There are more ways than ever to understand sexuality, gender identity, pleasure, and desire. Women coming out in this moment and then emerge in the 2010s and, and now the 2020s are finding more space to be independently curating their narratives, that it's not as reliant upon these large mega industry entities that reproduce this idea that there's only one story, that hip hop will always be this heteronormative space that's only there for men to talk about sex with women and maybe a little bit for women talking about sex with men. Um, And... I think our society is largely homophobic, which does not excuse hip hop. <laughs> hip hop has an opportunity to check itself mm-hmm. and to do better with that. But the narratives around masculinity, around heterosexuality, compulsory heterosexuality play out in popular culture, often in some dangerous ways and even at times in some violent and fatal ways. And I think hip hop is reckoning with that. It has to think about homophobia. It has to think about transphobia in a way if it's going to continue being a culture that's on the pulse of youth culture, because young people are blowing up our ways of thinking about gender. They're blowing up how we think about sexuality. Okay, you know this song. Please don't make me have to introduce it to you. I guess I do. Lil Nas X, Old Town Road. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. It blew up the charts. It blew up gatekeeping around genre. And it electrified conversations about gender. My life is a movie, bull riding in I think about Little Nas X when he comes out and it's seen as this huge moment in hip-hop. It's the, you know, first mainstream kind of out hip-hop artist, specifically hip-hop artist um, that we have. And, the, and, and and it's interesting because I'm like, well, there are a lot of women who were out <laughs> prior mm-hmm. to this, but, you know, it's only when men do because it's this question of masculinity being so deeply entrenched with heterosexuality that the ideal masculinity, this mythic norm of what masculinity is, is cisgender, it's male, it's attractive, it's well-resourced, and it's certainly heterosexual. After speaking with Treva, I felt like she'd voiced what had been nagging at me while putting together this episode. The conversation has to include more voices than just the women who are impacted. That's what Joan Morgan said at a hip-hop and feminism panel in 2010. When I put the terms hip-hop and feminism together, most people just sort of felt like that couldn't possibly exist in the same phrase, sentence, let alone the same person. And I felt, I do, I exist. And I'm at the point where conversations about gender and misogyny and sexism in hip-hop also have to be met with some sort of proactive action um, or we just sound like a bunch of women complaining about the sexism and misogyny. 
I think hip hop feminism to me is really about a verb, you know? It, it's, it sounds like it's a noun, but feminism to me is about what you do, not just what you say. You have to have some sort of accountability to the women here and engage us in a dialogue. I started this episode looking into the nice guy because I wondered how people were responding to this character, how different he actually is from other more traditional versions of masculinity and hip hop. But it seems to me that even if the nice guy represents more of the same, it's the conversations around him from the fans who push back on Drake standing in Rihanna's spotlight to the work of young academics and emerging rappers. That's what's super vital. It is the verb that Joan Morgan is talking about and builds on her work of including race and class and sexuality in the conversation. And even the nice guys themselves. This podcast was produced by Ty Harper, Del Cowie, Josh Block, and me. Mixing and sound design by Andrew Norton. Judy Tsi-Gu is our digital producer. Story editing by Chris Oak. Additional producing on this episode by Beza Seifa. Our consulting producers are Dalton Higgins and Pasant Matar. Original music composed by Boombox Sound. Transcription by Kelsey Cueva. Tanya Springer is our senior producer and Arif Narani is our executive producer. Special thanks to Nanaba Duncan. I'm Anupa Mystery. Coming up next time on This Is Not a Drake podcast, we look at rap's journey to pop dominance via its complicated relationship with R&B. People still to this day point to this is the moment everything changed because the man is extremely sad on this record. <laughs> He's just crying in autotune the whole time. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.